Hello and welcome to today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Thursday, January the 11th, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik, and here's our first story. Reynolds' Condition of the State Address, entitled Cut Taxes Now. She wants to reduce state income tax rate to 3.5% by next year. It's written by Tom Barton and Caleb McCullough of the Courier-Des Moines Bureau. Governor Kim Reynolds used her seventh condition of the state speech Tuesday to call for accelerated income tax cuts and to express grief over last week's deadly school shooting in Perry and her gratitude for law enforcement and school officials who responded to it. The Republican governor, in her annual address to a joint session of the Iowa House and Senate, also outlined plans to increase teacher pay, reform the state's area education agencies that serve children with disabilities, and create a network of nonprofits to connect Iowans in need with assistance. Reynolds began her address by acknowledging the shooting Thursday at Perry School High School that killed 11-year-old Amir Jolif, a sixth grader, and injured seven students and school staff. The 17-year-old shooter, a student there, killed himself. Our hearts are, ver- are still heavy, and our prayers continue for the victims and their families, and for the entire Perry community, Reynolds said. The senselessness of it shakes us to our very core, yet even in the darkest hour, light and hope break through. That was certainly the case on that day. Principal Dan Marburger tried to calm down the shooter and distract him so students could flee, according to his daughter and law enforcement. He was critically injured, sustaining multiple gunshot wounds at close range. His unflinching bravery saved lives that morning. Dan is a hero, and we pray that he's soon back where he belongs, with the students who are so lucky to have him, Reynolds said. She also acknowledged the courageous actions of the local law enforcement officers, first responders, and state and federal agents who responded to the shooting. Reynolds and lawmakers took a moment of silence to honor those affected by the shooting, and also an Algona police officer and Ionia firefighter who died in the line of duty last year. Reynolds did not propose any new firearm restrictions in reaction to the shooting. Speaking after the address, Democratic House and Senate leaders said she and Republicans should address firearm access and broader gun violence issues in the wake of the shooting. One of the best ways to honor the community of Perry, who just endured this shooting, is to come up with policies that will make it so there's not another school shooting, said Iowa House Minority Leader Jennifer Conforst, a Democrat from Windsor Heights. Republican House Speaker Pat Grassley, a Republican from New Hartford, noted several of the governor's proposals received bipartisan applause, including proposals to raise teacher pay, expand workplace learning opportunities, and extend postpartum Medicaid coverage. I think we've seen this from Governor. I think we've seen from this governor that she has a willingness to take on difficult issues and have bold agendas and lay those out, Grassley said. And I think she did that again tonight. And quite frankly, on several of the issues, seeing all legislators rise, I think shows that the governor really laid out an agenda and there's going to be interest from both parties to want to have those conversations. Reynolds's priorities for the year includes accelerating income tax cuts passed in 2022 that started to take effect this year. The law would gradually reduce personal income taxes to a flat 3.9% in 2026. Reynolds's proposal would expedite that transition. Most working Iowans would pay a 3.65% state income tax on their 2024 wages 
and 3.5% on 2025. The proposal would reduce state income taxes and limit future state revenue growth by $3.8 billion over the first five years. Republicans say the state can afford more tax reductions with a $2.1 billion general fund budget surplus projected to grow to $3.1 billion in the next fiscal year, full emergency accounts, and $3.7 billion in the taxpayer relief fund. Let me be absolutely clear, the surplus does not mean that we aren't spending enough. It means we're still taking too much of Iowans' hard-earned money, Reynolds said. The governor also called for lowering taxes businesses pay to fund benefits for unemployed workers. Under her proposal, Iowa employers would pay a maximum rate of 5.4% on wages up to $18,000 per employee, as opposed to the current 7% on wages up to $36,000 per employee. Reynolds' office estimates that will save Iowan employers more than $800 million over five years. We turned our unemployment system into a re-employment system, and it's having the intended effect, Reynolds said. After Reynolds's address, House and Senate Democratic leaders said they were concerned that further income tax cuts would disproportionately benefit the wealthy, while leaving hundreds of thousands of Iowans who pay no income taxes with no benefits. The people who have been the biggest beneficiaries of this tax cut that's currently in place are those who are earning more than a million dollars a year, Senate Minority Leader Pat Yoakum, a Democrat from Dubuque, said. Reynolds also is asking the legislature to invest $96 million in new money to increase starting teacher pay by 50% to $50,000 and to set a minimum salary of $62,000 for teachers with at least 12 years of experience. In addition, her proposed budget includes $10 million for the Emerit-based grant program to reward teachers who have gone above and beyond to help their students succeed. Reynolds also called for reforming the state's nine regional area education agencies created in the 1970s to provide special education support for school districts, arguing they operate without meaningful oversight. Over the last year and dozens of conversations with parents, teachers, school administrators, and AEA staff, it's become clear that while some of our AEAs are doing great work, others are underperforming, Reynolds said. We have superintendents who won't use their services but are still required to pay for them, and AEAs have grown well beyond their core mission of helping students with disabilities, creating top-heavy organizations with high administrative expenses, she said. Instead of funding funneling through the school districts to their AEA, the districts would be given the option under the proposal to keep that funding and allocate it for special education services as they choose at an AEA or at a private company. Under her proposal, AEAs would focus solely on students with disabilities and independent oversight would move to the State Department of Education. It would eliminate property taxes that are collected to support AEA functions that are not related to special education. The governor's staff has projected that would be an impact of $68 million in fiscally 2025. In the last five years, Iowa students with disabilities have ranked 30th or worse on 9 of 12 national assessments, while Iowa spends over $5,300 more per pupil on special education than the national average. 
Reynolds also said she would work to increase reading outcomes for elementary students and train teachers in a science of reading program, an evidence-based literacy program. Her proposal would also require the state to create personalized reading programs for every child who is not proficient in reading in first through third grade. Parents would have the option to retain children in third grade if they are not reaching literacy standards. Mike Baranek, president of the Iowa State Education Association, the union representing Iowa's public school teachers, called Reynolds' proposal to raise teacher pay long overdue. We're optimistic that this promise will turn into action for all of the employees of, in our public schools, some of whom work with the most vulnerable students and are still only making just $9 per hour, Baranek said in a statement. We hope this is not an empty campaign promise, but will genuinely mean that she values recruiting and retaining public educators, community college instructors, and the profession professionals serving in our area education agencies. Baranek also called on lawmakers to discuss real solutions to addressing gun violence in the wake of last week's school shooting. ISEA also called for continued support of area education agencies, which, along with school staff and law enforcement, jumped into action to help with grief and counseling services. Our public schools need more resources to help foster positive and inclusive school climates. They don't need weapons and fewer education professionals in the building, Veronica said. Democrats said they were skeptical of Reynolds' proposal to overhaul the AEAs and that they want to see more details of the plan. Yoakum, who said her late daughter received services from an AEA for a disability, said she was concerned it could disproportionately affect rural areas. I know a lot of families with special needs children are so dependent on those services, she said. It sounds like we're beginning to privatize even the area education agencies. Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitmer, a Republican from Grimes, said the proposal would allow schools more flexibility to provide special education services in ways that work best for them. As for looking, as far as looking at things like the AEA that have never really been reviewed and taking a look at it from a state government perspective, it's something that we want to do, Whitmer said. Reynolds called for increasing the coverage of postpartum care for new moms under Medicaid from two months to 12 months. Iowa is one of only a handful of states that has not implemented the extension, which was made available to states in the American Rescue Plan Act. To accomplish this, Reynolds' office said she would propose decreasing the eligibility for Medicaid coverage of birth and postpartum care to 215% of the federal poverty line from 375% under current law. While the benefits would be extended, the changes would make it harder to qualify for them, keeping Medicaid costs for pregnancy and postpartum care neutral. Under the new proposal, a single pregnant woman making less than $42,000 a year would have her pregnancy and 12 months of postpartum care covered under Medicaid. Reynolds tied the initiative to Republicans' passage of a strict abortion ban last year, now blocked in court, that banned abortion when a fetal heartbeat can be detected as early as six weeks. Reynolds said government assistance is critical for families working to get back on their feet, but should be a temporary aid on the road to self-sufficiency. 
To further that goal, she proposed a program to connect Iowans in need with faith-based organizations and the private sector and steer them away from government assistance. The program is modeled after Hope Florida, a program spearheaded by Florida First Lady Casey DeSantis, the wife of Governor Ron DeSantis. Reynolds has endorsed the Florida governor in his campaign for president. Whatever the challenge, Thrive Iowa will be there with dedicated navigators to help Iowans find their way to lasting independence, Reynolds said, and countless lives will surely change for the better. Reynolds will reintroduce proposals to allow birth control to be dispensed by a pharmacist without a prescription and expand paid family leave for state employees, her office said. Reynolds' office also said she would introduce legislation to require age verification for online pornography websites, similar to laws in Utah and Texas. Proposals to extend postpartum Medicaid and provide behind-the-county birth control have previously stalled in the House. Reynolds will propose a bill to cut and consolidate 111 of Iowa's boards and commissions, a continuation of her move last year to reorganize and reduce the size of state government. The proposal comes after a state panel, created in last year's realignment law, met to recommend changes to the state panels. Reynolds's proposal is in line with the committee's recommendations, she said during the address. Reynolds also proposed strengthening the state's laws regarding foreign ownership of farmland. Her proposal would strengthen mandatory landowner reporting requirements and grant the Iowa Attorney General subpoena power to provide more transparency on what farmland is under foreign ownership. Her proposal would also increase financial penalties for failure to report to the Iowa Secretary of State or false reporting. In an uneasy nation, Iowa stands out as a fixed point of prosperity and stability, Reynolds said in closing. As a reminder that remarkable people can always be trusted to build remarkable things, it's because of them, because of Iowans, that the condition of our state is truly strong and our future is truly bright. Our next article from the front page of The Courier is entitled, New Levy Consolidation, Caps Tie Up Local Governments. It's written by Maria Kuyper, Dateline Waterloo. More than $2 million is in limbo for institutions that receive voter-approved levies in Blackhawk County. The Cedar Falls and Waterloo Public Libraries, Grout Museum, and the Cedar Falls Municipal Band will have their lives consolidated into their respective cities' general services levy in July due to a new state law. House File 718, a a property tax law signed in May by Governor Reynolds, is designed to limit property tax revenue growth in local government budgets. It combines levies to reduce taxes by over $100 million across the state. The two libraries and Grout Museum currently collect levies of $0.27 cents per $1,000 valuation. All levies passed with almost 60% approval. The Cedar Falls Municipal Band has a levy of $0.02. Cents. A voter approval rate could not be found for this levy, which was passed in 1929. The Waterloo Public Library's levy was passed in 1993, and it received $740,000 from taxpayers last year. The Grout Museum's levy, passed in 2015, generated $680,000. The Cedar Falls Public Library's levy, passed in 2005, generated about $560,000. The Cedar Falls Municipal Band received $35,000.
Levies provide money directly to institutions from taxpayers without needing approval as part of the city's general budget, although the cities can still provide funding for the library and the band. The levy is the only city money the grout receives. The Waterloo Public Library levy makes up 25% of its budget. It allows for the library to be open longer by paying staff's wages. The grout's levy is 40% of its budget and helps pay staff, resulting in more hours open. The levy for the Cedar Falls Public Library is 25% of its budget and goes toward expanding collections and paying staff. The band's money goes toward paying its musicians and maintaining the band shell in Overman Park. Kelly Stern, director of the Cedar Falls Public Library, said if funds are cut, it would be felt across all areas of the library. It would involve cutting staff, cutting library hours, and cutting the amount of money spent on the collection, she said. It would impact our ability to service the community significantly. Stern, along with former Grout Museum director Billy Bailey and Cindy Wells, president of the Waterloo Public Library's Board of Trustees, believes the new law is taking away citizens' voices. However, they don't think legislators were targeting their institutions directly. We know they didn't say, I hate museums and libraries, we're going to get rid of it, Bailey said. That is not what happened. We knew it was an unintended consequence from this. Bailey and Wells' opinion was confirmed when they met with Black Hawk County legislators about the results of their votes. When they said they didn't realize how much it was going to impact us, I'm not surprised. I'm not even really offended, Bailey said. The law also was signed to create tax breaks for seniors and veterans. It is expected to provide $50 million in tax breaks for seniors and $7 million for veterans across the state due to property tax exemptions. Wells said seniors and veterans deserve to have those tax breaks, but the consolidation of levies could ultimately hurt those populations. She said seniors go to the library for books, magazines, and newspaper archives to save money. The Sullivan Brothers Museum also attracts veterans, but could ultimately lose funding. That was an unintended consequence, she said. They didn't realize they were actually hurting veterans. Judy Larkin, president of the Cedar Falls Municipal Band, and said many seniors enjoy the band's shows, will be disappointed if concerts were scaled back or cut. Waterloo Mayor Quentin Hart said the law is unfair to people who voted for these levies, not just because the state is going against citizens' choice, but because now the libraries, museum, and band have to go head-to-head with each other and other departments for funding. They literally have taken the voice and the power of the vote from the citizens and added that to our levy, he said. It's taken what the citizens had voted to be separate, and now you've made city departments competing priorities when the citizens have already spoken. Waterloo Finance Director Bridget Wood said that includes the Public Safety Department, which currently makes up 77% of the city's budget. The changes become even more convoluted due to another part of the same law. By fiscal year 2029, which begins July 2028, city governments must cap their general services levy at $8.10. Waterloo's current levy is $8.91, and Cedar Falls's is $8.39. The addition of the grout and library levies will make it even more difficult for Waterloo to increase the levy by $0.81 within three years. We're going to have to figure out how it's going to be funded out of that 
$8.10, Wood said. So we're talking to 27 cent levies and trying also to fund police and fire and administrative staff and all that plus library staff. She said the law was passed due to a large increase in assessed property values across the state last year. However, Waterloo saw a 1.2% increase, while neighboring Cedar Falls saw a 3.2% increase. Wood said the city just received this year's valuations. Those haven't been made public, but she hinted it wasn't a big change from last year. With cities like ours, where our growth isn't very large, we're still at that higher levy until we have significant growth, she said. When we hit the $8.10, it's going to be a substantial hit. Wood said that yes, property taxes will go down, but so will the amount of services and amenities the city provides. Hart believes this could affect the city's growth even more. Cities in Iowa need to be continuing to advance and continue to grow and continue to be able to attract young people and workers, Hart said. It really puts us in a precarious position of how we're going to be a thriving community. He said the state can make laws but doesn't tell the cities how to go about complying. They say we'll cap it at this, but they never tell you what the potential impacts may be, he continued, and we're the ones that have to deal with those impacts and maintain the level of budgets. Next is an article entitled Cedar Falls Couple Petitions Court to Spare Dangerous Dog. City orders animal that allegedly bit five people euthanized. This is written by Andy Malone of the Courier in the Dateline of Cedar Falls. Leanne and Chris Western are trying to save their beloved dog Reese after the city ordered the animal euthanized over allegations the pet is a danger to the public. The Westerns, who reside in the 1400 block of West 18th Street, are petitioning the district court to overturn the city's decision. They believe there's insufficient evidence to euthanize the dog and say their due process rights were illegally violated. A hearing was scheduled Thursday before a judge at the Blackhawk County Courthouse, 316 East 5th Street in Waterloo, but it's been pushed back to March 7th. Revealed for the first time in a written decision obtained by the courier is the Cedar Falls City Council's rationale to back the dangerous animal declaration by Police Chief Mark Howard in a 6-0 vote during a rare November 16th committee hearing. Deliberations were in closed session. Proceedings, including witness testimony and the council vote, took place in open session. Incidents of the three-and-a-half-year-old brown and white American bulldog viciously biting five people on different occasions between May of 2021 and October of 2023 fueled the decision by Howard. All victims sustained arguably minor injuries. Four incidents involved two public safety officers, a Cedar Falls utilities worker, and a postal worker at the Western's property. The most recent incident was October the 4th at a relative's property in the 1300 block of Clark Drive when the dog, referred to by many as a pit bull, allegedly bit the leg of a teenager on a bike. The Western's appeal of the chief's decision to euthanize as allowed under Chapter 6 of City Code. The council upheld the decision, concluding that none of those attacks were provoked and the Westerns have taken insufficient steps to prevent these attacks from occurring. Although Reese may not have acted aggressively or attacked persons most of the time, that does not mean he doesn't pose an unreasonable risk of harm to public safety, 
That has been proven over and over again, the council found. The council emphasized the latest attack was in violation of an agreement that the couple reached with the city after the fourth incident. The couple's court petition, filed December the 14th, asserts there's not enough evidence to indicate Reese is a risk and not sufficient grounds for the city to continue to confine Reese. The motion also argues improper emphasis by council members on the city's evidence and improper refusal to consider a video submitted by the Westerns that they said portrays the dog as part of the community. Close to a dozen people previously penned letters to the city backing the couple's portrayal of Reese as friendly. The couple said they were training Reese to address their pet's reactions, disagreeing with any perception he's an out-of-control, vicious animal. The couple's petition also argues insufficient notice of the proceedings and says the closed session violated the state's open meeting laws. Council members Dustin Ganfield and Kelly Dunn, and now former council members Simon Harding and Susan DeBurr, voted in person during the hearing. Council members Gil Schultz and Daryl Cruz were present virtually. Former council member Dave Sires was absent. City Attorney Kevin Rogers declined comment, citing pending litigation. The Westerns, who represented themselves during the city proceedings, have hired Jamie Hunter, an attorney with Dickie Campbell and Sahag Law Firm in Des Moines, to fight the city's ruling in court. The judge could remand the case back to the council for a new hearing, according to Hunter. The Westerns do not believe Reese poses a threat to any person or animal and are asking for his return. At a minimum, they asked the city not to kill him, Hunter wrote in a statement to the courier. The petition also asks that Reese be confined at a facility of their choice. Hunter could not be reached for further comment. Woman arrested after kids found on roof. This is written by Jeff Reinitz of the Courier. A Waterloo woman has been arrested after three small children were found playing on the roof of over her front porch on Monday. A neighbor noticed four kids, ages 2, 2, 3, and 4, on the roof at the duplex at 938 Leavitt Street around 12.20 p.m. on Monday. The resident yelled for the children, and they climbed through a window to go back inside. A short time later, three of the children crawled back out onto the roof, and one of the children shut the window, trapping them on the roof. Police and firefighters found the kids still on the roof in their diapers, according to court records. They were returned to the house. Officers found the woman who was looking after the children. One was hers and the others were a relative's who said she had fallen asleep. Authorities also found two bongs. Symphony Ann Hollers, age 25, was arrested for three counts of child endangerment and two counts of possession of drug paraphernalia. In another article written by Jeff Reinitz, Waterloo man arrested for squad car vandalism. A Waterloo man has been arrested for allegedly smashing a police car window. Authorities said Sean Allen Rents, age 33, hurled a large rock at a squad car, 802, while it was parked next to a city building at East 7th and Franklin Streets near the police station around 3.15 p.m. on December the 30th. The rock damaged the window and trunk. Damage was estimated at $2,000. Officers identified Renz through a surveillance video, and he was arrested for second-degree criminal mischief Friday. The arrest came two days after he was placed on probation for a November incident where he allegedly broke $75 worth of liquor bottles at Casey's General Store on LaPorte Road. 
Now we come to a story entitled Ground Broken on Emergency Services Building. Ceremony follows years of Gilbertville fundraising plans. It's written by Holly Hudson Hill of the Courier, and the dateline is Gilbertville. The brief and chilly groundbreaking ceremony held in Gilbertville Monday was in stark contrast to the years of planning and fundraising that brought the event to fruition. The wind howled as local dignitary, school kids, and Representative Ashley Hinson gathered behind the Casey's on 25th Avenue to break ground for the new emergency services building. With a backdrop of fire and rescue vehicles, Mayor Mark Thorne addressed the crowd, warmly thanking Hinson, who secured $500,000 in federal funding for the $2.3 million project, the Gilbertville Fire and Police Departments, the Blackhawk County Gaming Association, Blackhawk County, and the residents of Gilbertville. All had a hand in raising money for the building. The ceremony went well and had a nice turnout, he said, following the event. It seems like it has taken years to get to this point. I'm looking forward to seeing the building progress weekly. The fire and police departments and the citizens are excited to get the building started. It has indeed been years. Both Fire Chief Kurt Bovey and Police Chief Josh Evans said their departments have been planning and fundraising since at least 2016. The trucks aren't getting any smaller, Bovey said, addressing the need for more space than the current facility. We're real excited to get the building up. It was a good ceremony this morning. He said it has been gratifying to get support from so many different sources. The citizens who donated and came to our fundraisers and supported the bond issue, the Gaming Association, Representative Hinson, the County Board of Supervisors, we wouldn't be here without them. Hinson thanked the first responders on hand. You are the ones who keep us safe, she said. She said she had three main objectives when she went to Washington, D.C. to make sure rural America has a seat at the table, safety and security, and to use tax dollars responsibly. This project checks all of those boxes, she said. She also acknowledged students from the Bosco Catholic schools in the crowd. This building is for you, for keeping you safe, she said. Thorne said fundraising continues and donations can be made at Gilbertville City Hall, 1320 West 5th Street. The new 12,400-square-foot structure, which will house the fire and police departments and emergency medical services, will be located just north of Casey's on the north side of town. Cardinal Construction is the general contractor, and the building is expected to be completed by December of this year. You are listening to the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Rating Information Service for the Blind. All materials heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. If you have any comments or concerns on this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at area code 515-243-6833. Now we'll turn to today's obituaries, and first we remember Deanna Lane, age 79, of Waterloo, who died peacefully at home Monday, January the 8th. A memorial visitation will be held from 2 to 4 p.m. Sunday, January 14, 2024, at Lock at Tower Park, 4140 Kimball. Memorial services will take place at 11 a.m. Monday, January 15th, at Cedar Heights Community Presbyterian Church in Cedar Falls. Memorials may be directed to St. Croix Hospice. Condolences may be left at www.locke.funeralservices.com. Next, we remember John Jack Welcher, 
age 89, of Cedar Falls, who passed away on Tuesday, January 9, 2024, at Cedar Valley Hospice from leukemia. Jack's funeral services will be held at 11 a.m. on Wednesday, January 17, 2024, in the Worship Center of Nazareth Lutheran Church, with visitation the evening prior from 4 to 6 p.m. at Dahl Van Hovey Schoof Funeral Home, both of Cedar Falls. Jack will be buried at Fairview Cemetery of Cedar Falls in a private family graveside service. Memorials may be directed to Cedar Valley Hospice or Habitat for Humanity. Few full obituary and condolences at www.dahlfuneralhome.com. And we remember Jerry D. Teachens, age 86, of Creekside Nursing Home in Grundy Center, Iowa, formerly of Waterloo, Iowa, who passed away peacefully on the morning of Sunday, January the 7th, 2024, with his loving family by his side. Public visitation for Jerry will be held from 5 to 7 p.m. on Thursday, January the 11th, 2024, at Haggerty Wachoff Gara Funeral Service West Ridgeway, located at 300 West Ridgeway, Waterloo, Iowa. Funeral services will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Friday, January the 12th, at the funeral home as well, with Pastor Joel Higgins officiating. There will be a one-hour visitation prior to services on Friday as well. Memorial contributions may be directed in Jerry's name to his family, which will be designated elsewhere at a later date. For further information or to leave an online condolence, please visit www.haggertywaychoffsgrarup.com. Haggerty Way Trough Grarup Funeral Service, West Ridgeway location, is caring for Jerry and his family. And we have one death notice. Randy P. Primer Farber, age 67, who passed away on Friday, January the 5th, 2025. A private family graveside service will be held at Bear Creek Cemetery near Vinton. Arrangements by Phillips Funeral Home in Vinton. In other local news, W-SR Board approves West Cedars School Bid, Waverly Housing Program to Create Low-Income Units. This is written by Angela Sturm McLaughlin of The Courier, and the dateline is Waverly. The Waverly Shell Rock Board of Education approved a $5,000 bid Monday to expand low-income housing on the West Cedar Elementary School property after it is replaced next fall. The bid from the Waverly Municipal Housing Commission was one of two considered for the school. The other bid, also for $5,000, was submitted by Matt Hibbard to create a nonprofit community arts center. The commission operates the Waverly Low Rent Housing Agency to provide apartments for elderly, disabled, and handicapped residents, according to a letter submitted by the board to the board by Commission Chairman Seth Engelbrecht. It is looking at converting the school at 221 15th Street Northwest into as many as 10 to 15 apartments. Alternately, it could raise the school and construct new apartment units on the land. Before the unanimous vote, many Waverly residents appealed to the board to allow the school to become a community arts center. Melissa Barber, one of the partners of the West Cedar Center for the Arts Committee, gave a presentation outlining the group's proposal for the center. Between the library, the daycare, walking distance to both junior and senior high, and the senior housing next door, This location is truly a central location, she said. 
By creating the Art Center here, we are creating a cultural campus that allows us to partner with the library and serve all ages. The Commission operates three properties with housing 116 units on a six-acre campus east of 15th Street Northwest and north of 3rd Avenue Northwest. At this time, there are tenant waiting lists for all properties with more demand than there are units, Engelbrecht wrote in the letter. Because of this, the agency has looked for opportunities to expand. Due to the location of the West Center School, this is the perfect location for expansion of the agency. A feasibility study outlined three options. Those include converting the whole building into 10 to 15 apartments, using a portion of the building to rent space to local nonprofits, and having fewer apartments or tearing down the building to construct new apartment units. Jess Kettleson, board vice president, explained the choice of the housing proposal after the public comments. He said each proposal had merit. Both things to us were pivotal to the community, Kettleson said. We want both of these items, but what we came back to was what is a want versus a need for our community. We need more low-income housing now in the community. Public discussion on the housing center is planned at the next school meeting on February the 5th. Students at West Cedar and two other Waverly elementaries will move into the new Prairie West and North Ridge elementary schools next fall. North Ridge has already opened and is temporarily housing Shell Rock Elementary School students while their building is being renovated. Prairie West and Shell Rock Elementaries will be open by next fall. Students at West Cedar, Margareta Carey, and Southeast Elementary Schools will move into the new schools next fall. Waverly Shell Rock Community Schools officials also hope to sell Carey Elementary. They will maintain Southeast Elementary for other uses. Next is an article entitled, 15 Groups Get County Funds, But Half of What Was Sought. This is written by Maria Kuyper of the Courier, the Datelines, Waterloo. 15 area nonprofits will receive money from the county, but only half of what was requested was awarded. The Blackhawk County Board of Supervisors approved funding of $186,000 for the organizations in a 3-2 vote. Supervisors Linda Leyland and Tom Little voted against. Out of eligible requests, 17 organizations had requested $490,240. Four groups did not qualify for funding because they requested money for specific items rather than expansion of a program. For this fiscal year, the county had $100,000 in its budget for community service funding requests there was also $18,500 unspent from last year. Supervisor Travis Hall was ready to spend extra money from the county's general fund to accommodate most of the organizations with up to $10,000 each. Although the vote was split, he said it shows the board wants to use tax dollars to help the community. These dollars were already taxed and collected years ago, Hall said in an email. I would rather fund projects than continue to add to an already overly healthy reserve. Organizations receiving $10,000 include the Boys and Girls Clubs of the Cedar Valley, House of Hope, Friends of the Family, Iowa Legal Aid, One Cedar Valley, Operation Threshold, Riverview Center, the River Arc, and World Grace Project. Other organizations received half of what they requested. Elevate Housing Foundation received $6,000. Junior Achievement of Eastern Iowa received $5,000. 
and the Job Foundation received $7,500. Cedar Valley United Way requested $2,500 and received the full amount. Grow Cedar Valley received $25,000 of its requested $50,000. The Northeast Iowa Food Bank is the only organization to receive its full $50,000 request. Hall and Supervisor Chris Schwartz said they hope this is the last year the food bank has to request funding through this process and instead received funds from the General Assistance Fund. Schwartz said this would allow the organization to have a base level every year to address food insecurity. The county's public libraries, which requested $50,000, and the Cedar Bend Humane Society, which requested $10,000, did not receive any money. The supervisor said the organizations are already covered within the county budget and they will consider the requests in the fiscal year 2025 budgeting process. Leyland said she voted against the requests because she didn't feel it was right to dip into savings for this instance and not when budgeting for the county's own departments. It weighs heavily on me that we're asking people to make accommodations for their budgets, she said, and yet we're trying to take some steps to change what we budgeted. The county will work on department's budgets this spring. Now we come to an article entitled Buyer of GMT Division Plans to Grow Workforce. Waverly Fabrication Operation Bought by Van Am in December. This is written by Andy Malone of The Courier and the Dateline is Waverly. An out-of-state company's acquisition of a longtime fabrication operation is expected to create more jobs for Waverly. Van Am Tool and Engineering a metal machining and fabrication company based in St. Joseph, Missouri, purchased the fabrication division of GMT Corporation on December the 29th. A byproduct of opening what's now Van Am Defense Systems is a plan to grow its workforce to support increased production and an expanded customer base. Van Am CEO Keith Mills said he hopes to double the operation to 30 to 35 employees within the next year and 65 to 70 employees within the next three years. The company's plans include hiring more welders, machinists, fabricators, engineers, and support staff there. GMT gave up 16 employees in approximately 75,000 square feet of leased space at 504 First Avenue Southeast as part of the deal, CEO Mike Clausen noted in a telephone interview. In addition to Van Am establishing its first facility in Iowa and growing its business, the company also assumes from GMT a government contract with Lockheed Martin to produce Navy vertical launching systems. In addition to machinists, Clausen said GMT will be looking to hire for different types of roles going forward as part of an ongoing plan to recreate his company. The list includes machine maintenance technicians, engineering support, and other support employees for its growing automated computer numerical control machining. To address the challenges with hiring, the firm also places an emphasis on creating talent through programs like apprenticeships rather than expecting to find workers with the needed skills. The two companies, both with histories dating back several decades, already had a reciprocal relationship before the transaction for an undisclosed amount. The move made sense for Van Am because of the additional capabilities and capacity that the Waverly Division offered to support its current and expanded customer base. Van Am takes over an operation primarily focused on the defense sector and plans to diversify as well to produce crane sections and large trucking components there for the utility sector, said Mills.
the divestiture of the department had been anticipated, said Clausen, as consolidation had already been underway last year and a half. This allows us to go from a broader strategy to a more focused one on our core of customers with large, complex, high-precision machining needs, he said. GMT's customers are in the agriculture, construction, off-highway, defense, aerospace, industrial, and energy sectors. Its now former facility had capabilities such as welding, cutting, and bending steel largely in the defense space, but also for industrial applications. The Waverly-based company has about 180,000 square feet of facilities and 200 employees remaining after the deal. In 2019, almost 300 employees worked in three facilities, according to Courier Archives. The other two facilities are listed online as being located at 2116 East Bremer Avenue and 1900 8th Street Southwest. And in another article written by Andy Malone, Waverly Rethink's Approach to Economic Development. The City Council gave initial consent Monday to dissolve its Economic Development Commission, a nine-member panel in existence since 2008. The move marks a change in how the city goes about economic development. Officials emphasized it is not a reflection of past or current performance. In its first meeting of the new year, the Council unanimously voted on the first of three readings to repeal Chapter 33 of the City Code after a lengthy discussion. Administrator James Bronner said the commission no longer serves a significant purpose and the city would more effectively with a much smaller, more nimble group headed up by hired professionals. The possible changes in direction comes at a time when Bill Werger, the city's head of economic development, is approaching retirement, said Bronner. I've never been a fan of the term grassroots effort, but it's almost that kind of a way of doing economic development. We're going to see this as more customized economic development, Bronner said. We can do that faster with a few people versus trying to schedule a commission of 8, 10, 15, or a group of 50 as we've done in prior strategic planning, he added. He described the commission as very successful in providing direction for what was an economic development strategic plan in 2008 and determining how its newly formed department would function. Part of the current problem stems from the commission's meetings being public. Bronner said he'd heard from developers and business owners who do not want to talk about plans in preliminary stages. While we are a very friendly community, we do like to talk about things and sometimes things we shouldn't talk about, whether it's business coming to town or we like to go to Facebook court and handle things out there, said Bronner. There have been instances where some businesses really didn't like that and talk ceased when we were starting to get to a point where we'd like to go forward. He said the current structure doesn't fit Waverly's needs anymore. We aren't growing like someone in the metro would be or someone like that, so we don't have a lot of corporations or businesses coming in where we have development agreements and things we need guidance on, and so it's really thinned out to where we aren't meeting as much, said Browner. We're not having meetings at all, or we're lucky to have a quorum, And even the last meeting I attended in December, it was the first one since July or September. Now we'll head over to the sports page and our top story from high school basketball. Just let it fly. Jessup's Miller breaks Jayhawk career scoring record. This is written by Ethan Petrick of this courier. Dateline is Jessup. 
Joe Smines will never forget one practice from February 2020. With a week between the end of the regular season and the start of the postseason, the Jessup Jayhawks head boys basketball coach called up a handful of Jessup 8th graders to practice with the varsity team. It did not take long for Jack Miller to make an impression. I remember our assistant coaches. They looked at me about five minutes into practice and said, yeah, he is going to be starting for us next year, Smines said. He was an 8th grader practicing with upperclassmen and knowing exactly what to do. His sense of the floor, how to guard people, the stuff that you cannot teach all the time, is off the charts. It was that way as an 8th grader. A 20-point-per-game player in junior high, Miller's reputation had preceded, but Smines knew from that moment forward that he would be a factor for the Jayhawks. Four years later, Miller knows the significance of that moment. However, at the time, it was just another practice for the rising star. I had a bond with all of the high schoolers already, Miller said. It just felt like playing basketball with my friends. Miller started all 23 games the next year as a freshman and averaged 10.7 points per game. However, the fit at the varsity level did not happen as quickly as it had on the practice court. Through his first three games, Miller scored just 23 points and shot 8 of 27 from the field. His struggles continued into the first half of the Jayhawks' fourth game that year against undefeated Applington Parkersburg team, which ultimately advanced to the Class 2A semifinals. Smines described it as a freshman moment as Miller finished the first half with zero points, but Smines reinserted Miller into the lineup to start the second half. That is when it clicked for the five, the then five foot eight guard as he drilled seven triples in the second half and nearly powered the Jayhawks to an upset win as the Falcons won 84 to 83 in a hard fought contest. I was kind of timid and kind of scared to let it fly, Miller said. I think I kind of found it there. It was just, if I felt comfortable, caught the ball right, shoot it, just let it fly. Miller finished his freshman season third on the team with 246 points. In his sophomore season, Miller continued to let it fly, finishing third on the team with 328 points. The same season, another statement game came against AP as Miller scored 24 points to punch the Jayhawks' ticket to the state tournament. As a sophomore, he played on a really good team, Smines said so he was not the main option all the time. In the sub-state final that year, he took us home with a 20-point-plus game to beat AP, which was a huge moment for him in a huge game. The lone non-senior in the starting lineup in the 2021-2022 season, Miller returned the following year as the obvious top offensive option for the Jayhawks. Despite seeing the best opposing defenses had to offer, Miller maintained his let-it-fly mentality and put up 597 points, including a 50-point game against North Tama on 50.8% field goal percentage as the Jayhawks' leading scorer. According to Smines, Miller worked hard to get himself stronger over the course of his high school career. That commitment to the weight room helped him combat the physicality of being the focus of opposing defenses. He sees a ton of stuff, box and ones, double-teaming him, and it doesn't really ever seem to phase him, Smines said. He is able to find ways to get shots, to get open, no matter what that is. He never seems to get too bent out of shape about anything. He sees a ton of traffic. Teams try to grab him, hold him, push him, and he just seems to keep coming at you with offense. With 1,171 points going into his senior season, the now six foot one guard knew he had a shot at breaking the Jessup all time program scoring record. 
Through nine games this season, Miller scored 235 points to pull within striking distance of Brad Schmidt's record, which stood at 1,438 points. In game number 10, at home against AGWSR on Friday, Smines said the Upper Iowa signee broke Schmidt's record in the only way he could. He just let it fly. Standing on the left wing, seven feet beyond the three-point arc, with one minute remaining in the third quarter, Miller caught a pass from Kale Schissel and jacked up one of his patented deep threes. Swish! With his 13th field goal of the night, Miller pushed his scoring total to 34 points against the Cougars and rewrote the Jessup history books. Schmidt's record now Miller's 1,440 points and growing. It got pretty loud, Miller said. It was pretty cool to see everyone cheering me on. Our next story is entitled, Longtime Waterloo West Coach Recovering from Heart Attack. Pappas says he is doing very well. It's written by Jim Nelson of the Courier Sports Editor, and the dateline is Waterloo. Waterloo West girls head basketball coach Dr. Anthony W. Pappas released a statement Wednesday updating his health following a medical scare last week. Last Tuesday, Pappas suffered a heart attack defined during West High School practice. According to his statement, thanks to swift actions of staff and first responders, he was taken to Allen Hospital, where Tuesday he underwent successful bypass surgery. I want to share with you that I am doing very well and hoping for a speedy recovery, Pappas said in a statement. I want to personally thank Dr. Bavik Patel, Dr. Carl Terwillinger, and Dr. Jake Jaud-Deeb, and their entire team as they did an amazing job in saving my life. Special thanks go to my personal nurse, Kale Hackenmiller, who was wonderful. I will be back soon, Hawk Nation. Wahawk Nation, excuse me. Pappas suffered his medical emergency around 10 a.m. last Tuesday. Dr. Pappas has made a lasting impact on students, athletes, and the entire Wahawk community, Waterloo School Superintendent Dr. Jared Smith said in a statement. We continue to keep him in our thoughts and prayers and wish him a speedy recovery. Pappas, age 69 and a native of Mason City, is one of the most successful girls basketball coaches in the state. He is in his 47th season, 44 with the Wahawks. He won his 650th game last winter and has a career record of 659 wins and 387 losses. Pappas ranks 12th in all-time career coaching wins in the state of Iowa. Pappas has led West to 11 state tournaments, including the past four, and West has finished as state runner-up three times in his tenure. More than 70 former West High players have played collegiately. Pappas also coached at North Fayette and Mallard. The Wahawks are four wins and five losses this season. West has not played since the medical emergency. The Wahawks postponed their game with Iowa City High last Friday and Tuesday had its home tilt with Cedar Rapids-Washington postponed because of the winter storm that hit Iowa. While Pappas recovers, assistant coach A.J. Cassidy will lead the Wahawks. West hosts Iowa City Liberty Friday at 7.30 p.m. In high school volleyball, Peterson Gatorade Player of the Year. Dyke New Hartford's Peyton Peterson has repeated as the Iowa Gatorade Volleyball Player of the Year. Gatorade announced the award on Monday. Peterson led the Wolverines to a 50-0 mark and the Class 2A state title this fall, 
while amassing 616 kills, 328 digs, 39 aces, and 36 blocks. She was named a 2023 Max Preps and Under Armour First Team All-American and was the number 55 recruit in the nation by Prep Dig, while also being named one of the 20 best high school players in 2023 by Sports Illustrated. Peterson signed with Louisville. Peyton is an athlete who comes around once in a coach's career, DNH head coach Diane Harms said in a release. Her demeanor on and off the court is exceptional, and her work is ethic is unmatched. Peterson is the seventh Northeast Iowa area athlete to win in the 39 years of the award, joining Acacia Brown of Cedar Falls, Megan Gilbert of Tripoli, Hannah Wilms of Dyke New Hartford, Alicia Johnson of Tripoli, Megan Wittenberg of Tripoli, and Rachel Tink of Waterloo Christian. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. Thanks for sharing your time with Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.